Welcome back, listeners, to the Modern History HSC podcast. This is our first student episode for the year. Um, we are doing the Australia National Study from 1918 to 1949. And we started it last year. We've had about a lesson or so just doing a bit of a revision. So we're going to be covering the survey section, starting off with the soldiers returning home. So I've got six of the boys here today from my year 12 class. We're going to be starting off with Felix and PJ. How are you guys going? I'm going great. Yeah, good, sir. Yep. How are we feeling about this topic so far? Super. It's really good, interesting. Yeah. What do you like about it? I don't know. You put me on the spot. It's like we get to see a perspective you don't normally see. Like no one really talks about how badly the soldiers were treated or, or just the general era for them I guess mm-hmm. my favourite thing probably that we learned about so far was uh, flappers the flappers <laughs> yeah that was cool yeah and yeah that was my favourite thing so yeah mm. and can you maybe talk to the listener a little bit about our trips to the our local museum as well that we did a lot last year I, I didn't go oh crap so we went to the uh, Corindai Museum which had a lot of World War One or like World War One and post like afterwards artifacts, and um, so we had a good look at them. What were they? <laughs> and it was quite a while ago, so my memory's not a hundred percent. Could you name an artifact? Um, there was a trowel that was used during World War One. Salt. Yeah, there's a whole agricultural section now. The shed in the back, and it's just like a local museum that we're trying the partnership with. But let's get into the revision. So you guys are going to tell us about post-1918, 1919, when World War One is over and all the soldiers which are overseas, they're coming home and you're going to be talking about what it's, what it's like for a soldier to be returning home. And Felix, you're going to lead us into this all right so we're starting at 1918 straight after the war you know good guys won right so careful with hitting the desk too oh sorry um political divide is associated with the labor unions so they're (laughs) still wobbling the desk (laughs) sorry (laughs) the soldiers come home they're like "Woo, yeah we've won and they get home and They've all, all the jobs are stolen. They've got no money, no jobs. They're all sad and, you know, you can't have any jobs. So you got the soldiers on one hand, they're like, oh, government's, oh, no jobs. Oh. So they join the labor unions and they're like, all right, we're going to get us some jobs. We're going to get some better working conditions, all that good stuff. And then you've got the snobby little soldiers that are like, oh, we're going to get some jobs. And they're like on the opposite side of that, so they're more right-winged, and they're like, "These people, you fought for this country, and now you're trying to get some more jobs." Ah, 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 ah. And they're like, they're they're fighting, they're not having a bar of it with each other. So there's a lot of tension associated with that. Would you like to add anything, PJ? Who's no, the Who's really the good. prime minister at this time? <sighs> John Hughes. 
Billy Hughes. Billy Hughes. Oh, Billy Hughes, the little digger. The soldiers really liked him, so that's why they gave him that nickname. The little digger. The little digger. So did he serve? Serve in the, no, in the he war. was <laughs> he was busy being the prime minister oh. during the war. <laughs> But yeah, you made a really good point So the soldiers are coming back Unemployment is high And there's a lot of tension Between these two sides of right wing and left wing politics Also, fun fact uh, Some of the soldiers were fighting Like some of the right wing soldiers Were fighting with the Russian communists The left wing Yeah, the left wing But they were like Russian communist kind of ideas And that's why the RSL started To keep the soldiers out of fighting the That's commies. That's bit we talk about. Yeah, but it, I only put that in there. Just don't even say that. It's still on a podcast. Sorry, sorry valued listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just a little fun fact. Just yeah. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point that Russian revolutions happened in 1917. Communism is really taking the world by storm and it's frightening a lot of other countries, democracies, um, ex I guess, well, a couple of places that are still holding on to constitutional monarchies and all that sort of stuff, and it's bubbling up here a little bit too. PJ, what can you tell us? Um, so one of the solutions to this whole debacle were um, cities, oh no, shanty towns and soldier settlements, which were like little pop-up villages that were of very poor quality for the soldiers to go to. So the vast majority of soldier settlements settlements were in Queensland um, and they were like rural little blocks of land with a tin shack and um, they were very poor quality as I said so by 1927 a third of the people living in them had left Um, a lot of them went to the city slums and helped with the construction of the harbour bridge and stuff like that which I guess would be good because they're very like weathered conditioned men from the war so they should be good at construction and stuff. Um, what does any of this say? God. The vast majority of soldier settlements were in Queensland, with each state besides the NT having their own soldier settlements and rehabilitation programs. None of that is spelt right. Can you read? Or... Yeah. So soldier settlements weren't good. Shanty towns were similar, but also not good. So they went to the city slums and did a lot of construction. Yeah. The they didn't actually work, so yeah, fun fact, which is what PJ also said. Slums didn't work. The slums or the soldier settlement schemes. The soldier settlement schemes. That's right. That's yeah, right. I know, that's I know. Right. I forgot that's that you exactly said that. Exactly what I said. The shanty town. <laughs> Rightio. And when is unemployment like starting to decrease? Nineteen nineteen. Nineteen twenty one actually. Yeah. Nineteen twenty one. Employment is turning back to normal, and we're starting to see... In the like Roaring Twenties. Sub- yeah, excellent. Moving into the Roaring Twenties. Righto, thank you, boys. We're going to be moving into our next two speakers, which are going to be talking about the issues between urban and rural and how we're going to try to put Australia back on the map. Willem Dafoe. Okay, now we've got Taj and Will, and they're going to be talking about this in two parts. So we're moving into the Roaring Twenties. Uh, we could be talking to you about the, you know, the flappers in the movies and the culture, but we're going to probably be saving that for our last group. These guys are going to be talking about the economic plans. 
So, who's our um, who's going to be leading us into this? I will be. Right, um, I will. So, at this time in uh, nineteen twenty-three to nineteen twenty-nine, we have uh, Stanley Bruce, who's elected for prime minister, and uh, he basically um, at this point jobs are desperate at this point um, by many citizens of Australia, and he basically comes up with this uh, theme. Uh, men, money, and markets, which is basically his uh, organisation to um, re-establish um, Australia the best he could. Um, so it involved increasing population. Uh, so uh, at this time when um, World War One just finished, he. Uh, lured um, many people to Australia as um, uh, as a sense that they would have um, jobs, homes, and something else. Money. Prosperity, yeah. Prosperity, yep. Um, they were able to do this by borrowing money from Britain uh, to build infrastructure. Um, develop more agricultural and sell it to more market to get more money, I guess. Uh, uh, buy more manufactured goods from Britain, so Britain's helped them out a lot by the sense of this. Uh, yeah, and um, that's... So there's a lot of there's a lot of like debt borrowing going on in this time, yeah, which is quintessential. There will be no consequences to this action. No, <laughs> it's like so. If I can speak to your first point, so increasing the population, this is not only to increase economic production in Australia, but it's also like the worry of post World War One. We've lost a lot of men of fighting age, and Australia is a vast land with a tiny, tiny population. It's still that way today. So this plan is right. Let's turbocharge the population. Let's try to bring it up to, you know, like a hundred million people, which is still like five times what it is today. But that doesn't go through. One of the reasons would be what are the restrictions on the immigration? Like, who are they actually allowing in, is it? White, and preferably British. White, and preferably British, yeah. They did accept white aliens in some small number, which are, like, Italians and stuff. So, basically, white people that aren't from Britain. Yeah. So, yeah, people who, like, if you think about Italians and you think about Greeks and people from Croatia, which make up huge communities in our cities, like, our massive cities today... Like in the early stages, like they would have still they would have still had that label of like, oh, you don't speak the Queen's English, so you're you're a foreigner, so you're not trusted. And there's no way the Chinese and the Japanese are getting in. Like they're bottom bottom of the list. Um, so we're borrowing the money to pay for all of this. We're building and we're building. What are some of the places that they want to try to build? Can who's going to speak to that? I think well, it was mostly Queensland. But I remember there was, like, Cliffside in Western Australia, if I can remember that name right. Yep. 
And what's a general theme of all these places that they're trying to populate? What do they all have in common, would you say? They're underdeveloped. Yep. And on like the outskirts of Australia. Yep. And what is perhaps like a limitation for... Because they're trying to bring agriculture, like they're hoping they can populate these places that's just bush and scrub filled with rabbits, filled with uh, prickly pears, like infestation. It's like we'll send all these pommies and these Italians and stuff out there and they'll build these um, like these inner cities, just like what the Americans are doing. Like, why doesn't that happen? Like, why, what's limiting them? They went in it with the idealistic view of the Yeoman farmer, which is basically like dated back to like medieval days when it was like, yeah, you just live off the land with your family and, like, do small farming. Well, that doesn't work when the soil is terrible and there's, like, no... And the foreigners don't have any understanding of agriculture or the bush. So they kind of go in there blind. Yeah, and they don't have um, uh, really good equipment for farming at that time, where that comes in later in after World War Two. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's both your points come together that they're thinking that people have the skills but most of them are coming from cities cities that have been destroyed post-world war one people who were fleeing war-torn or post-war-torn europe but none of them have ever picked up a shovel or a trowel in their life and they don't have the advantage of what we would think of industrial agriculture today like what you just said will is there any other points we want to add as to this like what the country was trying to do, what Stanley Bruce was trying to do, anything else you want to add on? Well, adding to the soil bed, yeah. I read one particular problem was to do with salt. So farming kind of disrupted the local ecosystem, which inc- like prevented, like the ecosystem prevented the rise of like salt from the soil. Because that got removed, the salt rose up and destroyed all the crops. So it got even worse. So them coming and trying to do this mass-scale agriculture, but the skills are so poor, they end up destroying the natural environment, making it even harder to do agriculture. Yep. To me, that sounds very familiar to like the Chinese like five-year plans after World War II, that you're just thinking, oh, we're just going to throw a bunch of people at it and it'll work. And it just never works. You end up just destabilising the whole situation. Radio, thank you, boys. And we'll move into our third part. Okay, we're moving into part three, where we've looked at the soldiers, we've talked about what the prime ministers and what the government is trying to do post-World War I for Australia, in the land of opportunity. But is there opportunities that are increasing for women because one of the things that come up time and time again is that war because the men were away women were able to move out of traditional roles and this gave them tremendous freedom does that stand up to truth can you guys explain that a little bit more to the listener um so as so was saying it started off with the men leaving to uh the war that created the like first initial bit of empowerment for women, um, which led to them uh, like taking uh, traditional male roles, 
and um, raising the employment rate for women. Um, and then right here, Ethan will say the jobs. There's jobs like the women going into medicine, education, and some industry jobs. Specifically, there was Edith Cowan, or Cowan, yeah, in 1921, who was the first lady in Parliament. Yep. Cabinet member. Yeah. And um, she um, she really focused on as well, like, women's rights. She really yeah. pushed that equal pay and um, also, like, um, child services and child protection laws and stuff like that. She was very, like, a influential character in this 1920s period. Influential enough to get on the money. Yes, yeah, the, the $50, $50, yeah. $50 note. Right, keep going. Uh, yeah, so that was the first uh, big step that changed uh, the social norms for women. But this led to even more changes um, with younger women as well. And this is where we get to the flappers area. So the flappers were usually young, rich women, um, and they became a mainstream thing where they expressed themselves through their clothing, hairstyle, and dancing. This is from like the American side where they brought over and they just felt a sense of empowerment through these how they were creating themselves. Yep. Um, yeah. What else? Yeah, so that was like the um, the young women felt this empowerment through the sense of almost expressing themselves. But despite that bit of empowerment, women still faced a large amount of problems um, in Australia, such as the unequal pay was still there. And um, there was rare career advancements. In fact, there was actually more people taking out of their roles and getting uh, transferred back into like more of a traditional woman um, domestic role which we even led to the uh, domestic... Uh, Science the, movement, Yeah, right? the domestic, yeah. yeah. Um, which is the government or whatever is teaching the w- women who would stay at home the skills that they need to actually be d- uh, domestic wives and stuff. Yeah, they, they were worried that the next generation, yeah. like, had... Because so many women had been out to work, they have the skills. All these men, yeah. yeah, all these men sitting around in Parliament are just like, oh, they're going to lose the touch. Like, I mean, we're not going to have any women to look after the home, so let's bring in domestic yeah. science and teach her how to sew and teach her how to yeah, like to budget and budget the cash and clean better with their duties. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, is there anything else? What do you want to say? Um, just like kind of back onto the point of how women were empowered. It was kind of, they were, but the majority still weren't. Yeah. And that kind of leads with the domestic science movement that it was mainly the young and rich that were empowered, but then the rest weren't. They were still facing the same problems, the same um, having to do these domestic roles and not really being able to advance in their career at all. There was also the, the older feminists who were saying that these younger women shouldn't be doing this because it's just not the way. Hmm. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's just like change, yeah, always seems to happen slowly and I guess steadily at the fringes, but it's really not going to be like even by the time we get to the end of this topic, which is 1949, like women are still not in the position that they are today. Yeah, they've got to go through all the chaos of the 60s and the 70s and battle of the sexes of like the 80s and the 90s that. We're living in almost a totally different world hmm. today. Yeah. But there is change happening, and it is because of the war. And the depression, though, leading into our next topic, is really going to throw another spanner into the works for yeah. women because so many more people 
are either going to have to stay at home more or women might have to get forced back out to try to find some additional pay packet. So it's not equal. Yeah. It's just we can try to write it stereotypically, but the way that you guys have framed it is the best way that our listeners should think about it. Yeah, okay. Rightio. Thank you, Ethan, and thank you, Darcy. And thank you, listener, to tuning in to our first episode. It was a little bit shaky throughout, but I think that we're totally going to warm up into this. And same as you, warming up into your new topics and into the new year. And then we're going to be pros by the time we get into the HSC time. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast.